Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. When peace, or at least a halt in the war in Ukraine arrives, how will it come about? And what might it look like? And could an, and could an ascendant China perhaps the one power position to do so, play the essential role of mediator. UW Madison historian Alfred McCoy thinks so. Nowadays focused primarily on the long sweep of global politics, Al McCoy is the author of numerous significant works on U.S. imperial policy and practice, European colonialism in Southeast Asia, the illegal global drug trade, Central Intelligence Agency Covert Operations, and the Question of Torture. Added most recently to that list is his sweeping overview of the rise and decline of the world's modern empires, entitled To Govern the Globe, World Orders, and Catastrophic Change. Today, we'll be drawing from his recent essay, titled Peace for Ukraine, Courtesy of China? Another Step in Beijing's rise to global power, which appeared in Tom's Dispatch on the 13th of this month. Alfred McCoy, welcome back to WORT. Alan, thanks for having me. I love being here. You know, Al, you began your piece, the the June 13th piece, um, by pointing out that all wars do end, usually thanks to negotiated peace agreement, that that is a fundamental historical fact. But regardless, in recent months, among Russian President Vladimir Putin's followers, there's been much talk of a forever war in Ukraine. You noted a speech by Putin some months back in which he stated that the war was not a geopolitical task, but a task for the the survival of Russian statehood, creating conditions for the future development of the country and our children, close quote. You noted as well that other leaders have appeared to mirror Putin's forever war view, among them President Joe Biden, who last February assured Ukraine President Zelensky of lasting U.S. support, again, quote, for as long as it takes. With the current situation what it is, you stated in your piece that the most likely dream, uh, excuse me, most likely deal-maker when it comes to ending that forever war may prove to be President Xi Jinping of China. You pointed out, however, that in the West, Xi's self-styled role as a peacemaker in Ukraine, uh, that China has called for negotiate that China's calls for negotiations uh, ha- have been widely mocked and rebuffed, especially by Washington. What's going on there? What's that about? Oh, sure. Um, First of all, in world history, if we go back over the past 200 years, serving as a a major broker for peace not only settles past conflicts, but often marks the ascent of a new world power. Let's go back to the Congress of Vienna in 1815 that ended the, the 20 years of the Napoleonic Wars. Amidst the whirling waltzes, out came the United Kingdom as the preeminent power and it dominated the globe for the next century. Then, let's say, at the 1885 Berlin uh, Conference that carved up the entire continent of Africa for colonial rule, Germany emerged as the host of that conference and as a real rival, the first real rival to Great Britain. At the Versailles Peace Conference in 1919 in France that ended World War I, That was the U.S. debut on the world stage, and the San Francisco Peace Conference that started or founded the U.N. in 1945, that marked, if you will, the ascent of the U.S. and the start of 70 years of U.S. global hegemony. So these peace conferences have a 
a substantial and a real symbolic role in announcing the start of a world power. And let's think about what might happen if, let's say, after another six months or maybe 12 or 18 months, some point of this, this meat grinder war going on with the reverberations roiling the world economy and plunging half of humanity that lives on $7 a day or less into, into ever-increasing hunger. And supposing you know there's a peace conference in Beijing and Xi Jinping is presiding over it, all eyes on five continents will turn to Beijing and suddenly the whole world will know that there's a new great power that has the capacity to resolve the most serious of global conflicts. And that will mark a significant step in China's rise to world power and the establishment of its very distinctive kind of world order. You talk about that capacity a bit further. Uh, you raise the question, the rhetorical question in your, in your article, that who else could bring the key parties to the table and potentially make them honor their signatures on a peace treaty. Talk about what gives China that clout at this point. Sure. First of all, <clears throat> let's talk about the, the means, okay? Uh, there are basically five international actors that have the capacity to broker the agreement. First of all, the logical form is the United Nations, but Russia is on the Security Council, which will uh, validate any agreement and enforce it. So that's out. Russia itself is a, a party to the war. It invaded Ukraine. Um, the United States, which is our th a third of our major powers, is completely committed to Ukraine. And at one point when uh, the U.S. National Security Advisor was asked what he thought about uh, uh, Jake Sullivan, what he thought about China's peace initiatives, uh, about peace in general, he said, well, you know, peace can come when Russia stops invading Ukraine. Okay, so so the United States is 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 basically reacting to the war in Ukraine by shipping billions of dollars of weapons to Ukraine. And the European Union has fallen, and NATO, which is basically the arm of the European Union, the, the military arm of the European Union, they follow the U.S. position. So that basically leaves only one major player left on the planet who has something of an independent position, and that's China. Now, that's the, that's the, 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 that's the sort of the, the, the means part, or at least part of the means, okay? The specific part of the means is that China has invested uh, in the past decade a trillion dollars in extending aid across the Eurasian landmass. And that gives China you know, enormous global influence. The rise of its economy, its dominance over Eurasia, means that China you know, has the, 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 the financial clout, the economic clout, to broker such an agreement. And then there's the motivation. Uh, China, 10 years ago, under President Xi Jinping, launched something called the Belt and Road Initiative. And so far, it's lent a trillion dollars to 148 nations that are located mainly in the poor countries, the poor regions of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Now, a trillion dollars is 10 times the size of the U.S. Marshall Plan that historically rebuilt Europe after the ravages of World War II. It's the biggest financial initiative, bar none, in human history. And what that means is that China has pumped out development money, some aid, but basically loans, to poor nations in Asia and Africa and Latin America. And now some of those countries have up to 20% of their just gross domestic product involved in repayment of those loans. Moreover, those loans constitute about 25% of China's GDP. So China is, more than any other power on the planet, deeply invested in the stability of the world order, particularly in that portion of the, the world, the, the poor nations that were once called the third world. And the, the Ukraine war has created real disruption in a delicately balanced global order. For the past 50 years, Ukraine has literally been breadbasket of the world. It's got this deep, rich, black soil. Seventy percent of its, its terrain is devoted to agriculture, and it exports massive quantities of wheat and soybean oil, uh, sorry, so, soybeans and sunflower oil to global markets, making it the breadbasket of the world. 
And when the Ukraine war started, when Russia invaded Ukraine now over a year ago, suddenly global commodity prices, prices for those basic commodities, oil and grains, shot up by 60%. And that created real problems for all these poor nations, these 148 nations that have taken those Chinese development loans. And so China's global order is, is, is shaken by the Ukraine war in the way that no other nation, major nation is. I mean, Russia's got problems. The U.S. has had some inflation. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a problem. But for China, it's, it's a real risk. And so China has a stake in global stability, which is being disrupted by this war in, in the way that none of the other major players does. And so that gives China the motivation for trying to broker this agreement. And then there's also a couple of other things. Okay, what we've seen, uh, you know, China's role as a as a as a broker, its power is not only just the sheer economic power. It's it's grown very rapidly into the second, or actually by some measures, the largest economy in the world. It's clearly the the workshop of the world. It's the world's chief industrial power now in terms of manufacturing. Okay, so it's acquired enormous economic strength. And that economic strength has allowed it to dominate the Eurasian landmass. Most of that trillion dollars is invested in in Eurasia. Uh, uh, and so what this means is that, that China, having, you know, if you will, spread its influence across the whole breadth of the vast Eurasian landmass, all 6,000 miles of it, is now in a unique position uh, in order to influence events. And what we've seen recently are some real diplomatic shocks. Okay, last March, um, China played a key role in brokering and resolving the sectarian dispute that has destabilized the, the Middle East for a decade or more. And uh, in March, the foreign ministers of Shia Iran and Sunni Saudi Arabia turned up in Beijing and basically reestablished diplomatic relations, ending this very volatile rivalry between those two regional powers. Okay, And then shortly following that, among the succession of world leaders like the Prime Minister of Spain, uh, Lula, the President of Brazil, among that parade of world leaders turning up in Beijing, the way they used to turn up in Washington you know, a couple of decades ago, uh, was Emmanuel Macron, arguably the most influential political leader in Europe, the president of France, who declared himself ready for a, a, an epical agreement with China and warned the world against an excessive dependence upon the U.S. dollar as its foreign exchange currency. Okay, so, so you know, uh, Beijing is, is exhibiting suddenly extraordinary diplomatic power in the way that the United States once did. Go back to um, Macron for a second. Uh, he used the word, as, as you quoted in your article, uh, that, that various countries become less reliant on the extraterritoriality of the U.S. dollar. This challenge to that, well, basically monopoly of exchange based upon the dollar uh, appears to be crumbling. Yeah, um, it's one of those phenomena that was established at the, you know, out, out of the rubble of World War II emerged a new international system that was established at the Bretton Woods Conference from Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in, in 1944, and it basically made the dollar the world's global reserve currency. And since the end of World War II, since 1945, we have been the beneficiaries, you, me, and all Americans, we've been the beneficiaries of what we might, might call the grand imperial bargain. Okay, the world sends us minerals and oils and Mercedes and, uh, you know, cheap furniture and, and most of the things that we use in our home and lives. And we pay the world, for the most part, in brightly colored monopoly money, uh, U.S. dollars and U.S. Treasury bills, which are based on the U.S. dollar. And since the dollar is the global reserve currency, these countries basically have to take our currency in exchange for these commodities. And what this means is that if you think about the American social contract, you know, what do we tell the workers of America? We will give you minimal benefits and 
and actually very low, almost punitive wages, but you will have access to incredibly cheap consumer goods, clothing, furniture, food, motor vehicles, gasoline. You know, American prices are, by any standard, the cheapest in the world for basic consumer goods. And so that's the American social bargain. And if the dollar begins to wane and the cost of these goods go up, the reverberations, as we've seen in the recent bout of inflation and the political turmoil that's caused, this will destabilize the United States. So this is a, you know, a very real part of the U.S. presence in the world. And about five years ago, uh, when uh, Christine Lagarde was the, the head of the IMF, she made a dramatic announcement that the Chinese currency, the yuan or the renminbi, would, need, would now be a significant portion of the basket of currencies that make up, if you will, the global reserve currency sponsored by the International Monetary Fund. And over time, it's possible that the renminbi and the euro will grow and the dollar will decline as, as, the, as the foundation for this international economic order. You talk about how the the underly, underlying the sudden display of Chinese diplomatic clout that you just referred to uh, with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Iran and Saudi Arabia, for instance, uh, that that diplomatic clout is a reflects a recent shift in the essential realm called geopolitics that you've been specializing in. That 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 is a driving. F- a fundamental realignment in global power. Talk about that, that geopolitical shift uh, and that strategic realignment taking place, related, of course, to what you were just referring to with the uh, global currencies. Sure. Uh, Geopolitics is one of these terms that you can find in a daily newspaper. It's kicked around as a term, but it actually has a very complex and I think little understood meaning. A little more, a little over a hundred years ago, a British geographer named Sir Halford Mackinder wrote an article in the Royal Geographical Journal, in which he said that <clears throat> that uh, that that Eurasia essentially was the epicenter of of world power, and he said that the Moscow was building a railroad that was crossing 5,000 miles of the Eurasian landmass bringing Asia and Europe closer together, and this would produce a, an historic change. And he said, basically, um, uh, he said that, that that meant that by Russia crossing the heartland of these of this vast landmass was bringing Europe and Asia together. And then somewhat later, he summarized his, his thinking in a, in a maxim. He who controls the heartland of Eurasia Sorry, he who controls the heartland controls Eurasia. He who controls Eurasia controls the world. <clears throat> and, you know, if we think about what McKinder was saying, because it's kind of static, he doesn't really explain the dynamics of this. What I like to do is I like to, I like to imagine that, that Eurasia, beneath the sort of substrate, the invisible substrate of, of Eurasia, there are these, there are these the geopolitical foundation and that uh, just as the you know beneath the the earth's surface the incessant grinding of the tectonic plates produces periodic volcanic eruptions so changes in the substrate of Eurasia produce diplomatic eruptions periodic diplomatic eruptions so what's been going on by by investing a trillion dollars essentially in Eurasian infrastructure, most of it, China is laying down a massive steel grid of roads, rails, ports, and pipelines that are unifying Eurasia. And so in that substrate, in that merger of continents, of more than metaphorically merging Europe and Asia into a single continent called Eurasia, China is fundamentally completing that union, completing a fundamental change in that substrate. And then from that, you know, come this sudden succession of seemingly unrelated diplomatic eruptions, like the ones I've been referring to, like Beijing's sudden ability to mediate between the 
the sectarian division that's dividing the Middle East, bringing Macron to their door to proclaim a historic alliance with China and to condemn the influence of the U.S. dollar, etc. Okay, so you know, uh, and and so it's it's really possible that the next diplomatic shock would be China's role as mediator, as broker, uh, to end the war in Ukraine. Now let's look at the at China's capacity in a more immediate way. Okay, the reason that China was in a position to mediate between Iran and Saudi Arabia is it's the largest importer of Saudi oil. That gives it a lot of clout in Riyadh. And it's recently announced a $400 billion development scheme for Iran. And Iran, of course, is diplomatically isolated, cut off from global financial markets. So this is a major lifeline that's going to build massive infrastructure in Iran. Uh, Part of the project is going to be a huge railroad extending from Iran all the way to Pakistan. So uh, <clears throat> that meant that, that China was in a position with both powers to bring them to Beijing. And China's in a similar position. Okay, China's now the major importer of Russian wheat and Russian oil. And uh, before the, the, the war started, and this is something most people are not aware of, China was the chief economic trading partner for Ukraine itself. So again, it's a very close parallel to the Iran-Saudi situation that puts Beijing in an economic position to preside over a peace conference between these two warring partners, Kiev and Moscow. Talk about that a little bit further. Beijing has its own reasons to grow impatient with the economic disruptions radiating out across the Black Sea. Why is that? Talk about that a little bit further. You, you, we kind of blew by that, but but how the war has uh, has had repercussions not just in in the region, uh, but of course, uh, well, w- worldwide. Um, although the world has made progress in reducing the most extreme form of poverty, a quarter of humanity is still living on less than four dollars a day. Nearly half of humanity, 47% by one account, is living on less than $7 a day. Now, when, you, when you're that close to the margin of survival, the, the cost of your basic food is, is, your most, is, is the highest cost that people face. And when that, when that price goes up even a little bit, people are going to go hungry. Uh, there's, there's already, it's estimated by the, the United Nations that world hunger is doubled in 2023 to over 300 million people worldwide. All right now, this puts enormous pressure on governments, uh, let's say like Ethiopia and Kenya, that get most of their protein from imported, sorry, most of their carbohydrate, most of their basic food stuff uh, from imported wheat from Russia and Ukraine. And when the war started. The price of, of those commodities, wheat, barley, uh, soy, and sunflower oil, most of those commodities shot up by 60%. When you're living on $4 a day or $7 a day, you cannot sustain a 60% increase in the cost of commodities. You're just, the, the, the governments had to start spending their governments like um, uh, Zambia, Ghana, Ethiopia, Kenya, had to start spending their export earnings on on importing and subsidizing the importation of commodities in order to keep their people from from starving and to maintain social stability. Uh, Because when people start going hungry, as we've seen, riots break out and and stability is lost and societies tremble at the brink of social conflict. It's very serious. Okay, so they've got to start diverting money from repaying their loans to China. And countries like Ghana, Zambia, uh, Ethiopia have about, on average, 20% of their of their gross domestic product in repaying these development loans they've gotten from China. And as I mentioned earlier, China's got about a quarter of its gross domestic product invested in these loans. So both sides are, are, are subject to very serious political disruptions from this escalating price of food uh, coming across the, the, the Black Sea. Now, um, 
the when when the war started, the UN moved in and it started something called the Black Sea Grain Initiative, that allowed the ships to actually load in ports like Odessa in Ukraine and start shipping the grain to markets, and that stabilized the situation. Russia has now announced that they're out of it. They're they thought their fertilizer exports would somehow be accommodated in this. They're not satisfied, so they're quitting. And then there, there are immediate things. Um, you may have read, Alan, that at the, at the start of the current Ukrainian counteroffensive, a massive irrigation dam in, in southern Ukraine blew up. And that meant that suddenly, literally, more than a million acres of prime agricultural land which was removed from production. It's now basically a desert. So the war has done tremendous damage to these rich, black soils of Ukraine, which are literally the breadbasket of the world. You're listening to UW-Madison historian, global historian, Alfred McCoy. We're talking about Ukraine, Russia, and most pointedly today, uh, China and the possibility of China becoming a mediator uh, to bring the two p- warring parties uh, to the table. The phone lines are open if you want to join us with a question, a comment, an observation for Al McCoy. Give us a call at 608-256-2001. Uh, by the way, we're, we're referring to his article t- uh, that he appeared on the 13th of June. Peace for Ukraine, courtesy of China, question mark. Another step in Beijing's rise to global power. Again, 608-256-2001. Al, you devote the closing section of your essay. uh, It's called Beijing as Peacemaker. You suggest that by next winter, both combatants might feel far more compelled to sit, sit down in Beijing for peace talks. Um, what would that look like? Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, let's look at the, the motivations of, of all sides to see if, if, if peace is, is, is even a, a, a midterm, a medium-term possibility. Um, as we all know, there's been enormous publicity about this this much wanted spring counteroffensive by Ukraine. Uh, in the at, towards the end of the first year of the war, late last year and early this year, Ukraine accomplished uh, two really well stunning uh, victories. At Kharkiv, they they seized enormous amounts of territory and sent the Russians in retreat from eastern Ukraine. And then in the south at Kherson. Um, yeah, they actually captured the one provincial capital that uh, that the that the Russians had actually taken. These were major victories, and encouraged by those victories, the West, the European Union, and particularly the United States, began shipping something like 115 billion dollars worth of arms. They Hawk missiles, uh, Leopard and uh, Abrams tanks, and then uh, the Biden administration has recently committed itself to. Later in the year, uh, shipping F-16 fighters to Ukraine as well. So U- Ukraine got this massive amounts of armament, um, you know, long-range howitzers, HIMARS rockets um, that armed it for this this massive offensive. There was much publicity, and because of Ukraine's you know stunning victories at Kharkiv and Kherson, there was an expectation that you know that this in- influx of massive modern aid. Well, it might allow Ukraine to accomplish some some major territorial gains, and and as this offensive has now gotten underway, it's no longer a spring offensive; it's a summer offensive. Um, uh, the results have been less than impressive, because while that brutal battle for Bakhmut was going on, that city that was just of seventy thousand people was just destroyed by this meat grinder combat that killed something like 20,000 Russian troops and thus a number of Ukraine troops. Russia was quietly digging away. They have specialized trenching uh, machines, kind of giant tractors, and they were cutting massive fortifications along the 600-mile front 
in southeastern Ukraine where the war is being fought. And they were in reinforcing these with what are called dragon's teeth concrete formations to stop tanks. And, of course, <clears throat> you know, there's... Uh, there's, there's, a, 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 in the history of war over the last hundred years, there's a constant cycle between the, the, the tactics of defense and offense, which one has the advantage. In World War One, famously, the combination of barbed wire and machine guns meant that defensive troops in, in trenches, you know, could cut down the attackers. So suddenly, defense had the, the advantage that wasn't broken till the end of the war with the invention of the tank. Then in World War II, the, the Germans punched through the greatest defensive line in the world, the Maginot Line, with the Blitzkrieg. That meant that the tactics of offense had the current hand. And as we saw at the start of the Ukraine War, these light shoulder-fired tank-destroying weapons, um, like the Javelin missile that the Ukrainians had, meant that when Putin unleashed this massive you know, blitzkrieg of uh, the 40-mile the traffic jam of Russian armor heading to capture the capital of the Ukraine, Kiev, the Ukrainian forces, in brilliant defensive warfare, destroyed that, uh, that attack, pushed it back into Russia. So what we're seeing is that in the Ukraine war, it looks like the tactics of defense have the advantage. And now... Along that 600-mile front, the Russians, instead of attacking, are now in a defensive position, and the Ukrainians aren't advancing very fast. So it looks like, you know, that for both Ukraine, which had pinned its hopes on real gains in this offensive, and for the, the European Union and the United States that have backed Ukraine with $115 billion of arms to date, it's looking like the, the payoff is not what everybody expected, and as that as that supposed counteroffensive grinds to a halt, uh, that might give Ukraine and its Western backers motivation for sitting down at the peace table. On the Russian side, what we've seen, of course, is that the, 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 um, although the Russian economy has quite, been quite effective in resisting Russians, uh, sorry, international sanctions, and that Russia has the economic and military capacity to fight on for an indefinite period, in the rickety post-Soviet Russian state, you know, has been shaken by a serious coup attempt so that Russia, too, is paying a price of political instability for fighting this war in Ukraine. And that is probably going to give the Putin administration or the Putin regime in Moscow, the complex network of elites that support that regime, that's going to give them pause and because, you know, Russia, above all else, fears instability. And give them, once the dust from this this attempted coup, which was just last Saturday, once that settles, it looks like, I, I think that may give Russia some motivation as well. It, it, it may give, make, make elites in Moscow aware that, that this war is, in fact, has a serious cost for them as well. And that might allow both sides to develop the motivation for sitting down at the peace table. And if that happens, you know, who can broker this peace deal? Well, it's really Xi Jinping in China is about the only, quote, honest broker left on the planet who could actually negotiate a settlement. So what would the elements of such a, a brokerage uh, look like? What, what, are, what would the ingredients be, the, 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 the trading that would have to take place or at least the... Uh, conciliation of uh, interests? I think there are, again, this is all very hypothetical. Sure. But there are three essential components. One is land, okay? Where are the the ceasefire lines going to be drawn? Where are, if, if there are boundaries, will boundaries be drawn, okay? that that Will there be um, uh, something like a UN peacekeeper's that are inserted to enforce this division line. We, we've seen in the way that these um, take the, the, you know, the demilitarized zone in Korea. The Korean War ended in, with an armistice in 1953. There's still no peace treaty. So this can go on you know, forever you know, in, in modern terms. Okay? So, so again, so territory and dividing lines, that's, that's issue one. 
Uh, second is going to be Ukraine's international status. Okay, Russia was concerned about the, the the march of NATO to their borders, and that, in Putin's justification, as far as Putin's mind and in his his speeches to the Russian people, the threat of NATO encroaching on Russia's borders and and incorporating Ukraine has been a justification for the war. So it's going to involve something like, you know, um, maybe uh, the the terms of of Ukraine's entry into NATO will be a point of discussion, whether it's a, a... a ban, I doubt that will happen. Ukraine wouldn't accept that, nor would Europe. But there might be a negotiated delay of a period of years by which Ukraine would agree that they wouldn't join NATO. And the last thing is going to be reconstruction uh, and the end of sanctions for Russia. In other words, an economic settlement will be the third component. So Russia, of course, uh, has reasons to want an end of the sanctions. Uh, you know, the loss of the McDonald's franchise doesn't really concern them, but access to technology for both their industry and their military complex, that's a serious issue for Russia. So that's something that could be put on the table. The U.S., of course, and the EU would be playing a role there. But more immediately for Ukraine, uh, by World Bank estimates, they've suffered $400 billion in damage, nearly half a trillion dollars in damage. And they need reconstruction aid quite desperately. Their economy has lost about about a third of its productivity. And their capacity to recover without massive investment of that $400 billion will be very limited. China can provide that. China's construction companies are expert. They can come in. They can win the bids for the contracts. Moreover, as I said, before the war, China was Ukraine's chief trading partner. China could invest substantially in factories that would be producing, let's say, uh, infrastructure equipment for Europe's rapid move to alternative energy, wind turbines, solar power, electrical vehicles. These can be all built in Ukraine, and that will give China, if you will, a foot in the door about the time that Ukraine is moving in to the European Union, and thus, by stages, gains, if you will, reduced duty and then duty-free access to the European market. And those joint ventures with China and Ukraine would get China investments in behind that European Union customs barrier. So it would be win-win for Beijing. But I think that the one thing I I think that's going to emerge out of this is that China's position, its strategy of dominating Eurasia economically and then diplomatically will be amplified, be expanded, be strengthened by this possible peace agreement. Again, 608-256-2001. If you want to join the conversation with a question, a comment, an observation for historian Alfred McCoy, Give us a call again, 608-256-2001. Chuck, our engineer, tells me that we do have a caller on the line with a, we actually have two, so let's get them in. Let's go with Scott. Hi, Scott, you're on the year. Thank you very much. I was just wondering if Professor McCoy could uh, explain the contrast. What kind of strings are attached to, say, Chinese foreign aid? as opposed to American foreign aid. And thank you very much. Sure, thank you for the question. Um, most of that trillion dollars is not aid. When the United States, the United States gives two forms of aid. First of all, um, there is direct aid. In other words, it's, it's, it's essentially gifts. American experts come out to a country, they work out a development program with the country, and then they provide access. Uh, access to to U.S. technology and goods that uh, that, that realize that development project. Um, the, international, the, the, the International Monetary Fund just makes loans to countries, but the World Bank provides you know, actual development aid. Okay? Now, what China does instead is China gives essentially low-cost, uh, easy-term loans, uh, sorry, uh, easy-condition loans. 
Uh, many nations around the world, because of instability, because of a bad track record in paying past loans, in having governments with poor human rights record that don't meet U.S. or international standards, essentially can't get loans. So basically what China does is it, it waives the, the governance provisions, the fiscal probity, the human rights record, all of that, and it just on a, on a sort of cash-and-carry basis, it gives um, long-term, lower-interest, not, not terribly low, but lower-interest loans, development loans to these countries. And then it provides, usually it's Chinese companies that get preferential access to the construction projects. So whether they're building, let's say, freeways in Lagos or railroads in Kenya <clears throat> or pipelines you know, in, in Uzbekistan and, and, and in Central Asia, whatever it might be, okay, the Chinese companies have preferential access to the contracts for, for these, these development projects. That means that these loans have to be repaid. And that's why in countries like Ghana and Kenya, they're now in Ethiopia. They're now up to 20% of the gross domestic product of these nations. So it's easier terms, okay, but it's, it's, it's loans rather than outright aid. And that's why in the West there's a great deal of criticism of China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's been branded in responsible Western uh, journals, financial journals, as debt colonialism. All right. it, it is dependence, it is dominance, it is control, and there are lots of ties that come with these. But, you know, for many countries, it's their only access to capital. Again, you're listening to historian Alfred McCoy. <clears throat> we have a while yet, say 10 minutes. Give us a call at 256 one uh, Shally, our another producer, it, it tells me that we have Steve on the line. Hello, Steve. You're on the air. Yeah, Alan. Um, thank you, Professor McCoy, for your fine analysis. Uh, just some reminders. History isn't neat. At the end of the First World War, the U.S. was a belligerent, not a mediator. The host country of the so-called peace conference, France, imposed a victor's peace over Germany, which was not even party to negotiations. On the other hand, to reinforce your thesis about the uh, rise of the U.S. to predominance, in 1905, Teddy Roosevelt successfully brokered the end of the Russo-Japanese War at Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I hope this wasn't irrelevant and pedantic. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thanks for your comments. Al McCoy. Yeah, actually, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's role at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in effecting, you know, the negotiating uh, this bitter war between Russia and Japan, which was a, a meat grinder of combat. It was it was a brutal war. Earlier, I talked about the cycles between defense and offense. The first war on in the, on the planet that was kind of a dress rehearsal for the trench warfare in the Western Front during World War One was the Russo-Japanese War, and that was where the Russians developed the techniques of using barbed wire and machine guns in order to block these Japanese uh, attacks, the Japanese attempt to to conquer uh, the the Russian sort of sphere in Manchuria, and the the the, the combat was 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 horrific and only ended when Japanese village headmen informed the imperial Japanese imperial army that there were no more 18-year-olds for for the, for the slaughter you know that, that they they'd exhausted the limits of the Japanese population and that's when the parties came to the peace table uh and then uh Theodore Roosevelt's role as the broker in bringing these these exhausted but still angry belligerents to the table and, and getting an agreement won him the Nobel Peace Prize. One doesn't usually think of Theodore Roosevelt as a very peaceable man, but it nonetheless did. And it was, again, one of those events that marked the rise of the United States to world power. And, you know, it was, it was really where we... You know, apart from the defeat of the Spanish Empire in the Spanish-American War of 1898, uh, the role of the United States in the Hague Peace Conference of 1907, 
you know, and then the the dominant role of the United States at Versailles in 1919. Those were a cluster of events where the United States, in playing, um, you know, aggressor in in in, in the Philippines and you know, in the Spanish-American War, but nonetheless peacemaker at Portsmouth, peacemaker at Versailles, that marked or signaled the rise of the United States to, to world power in the eyes of the world's people. And a possible peace settlement um, in of, between Russia and Ukraine, in which Beijing might play a comparable peacemaker, could play a, an analogous role for Beijing, marking its ascent as a new world power a new real world leader. Um, I was just handed a note by uh, one of our people here in the station. We had a caller that didn't stay on the line for with the phone. But the question that was has been posed is: Is the West prepared to release the three hundred billion of Russian funds currently in Western banks? Yeah, that's yeah that. There has been there have been serious proposals made by um, you know supposedly serious people in the United States that the West confiscate those funds and uh, they're mainly in European and U.S. banks which have imposed together uh, heavy sanctions on Russia and that that the argument is that if the if the current estimate on the cost of of Ukraine's post-war reconstruction the damage done by the Russian invasion is 400 billion. Well, let's just take for as a as a 75 percent of that we can get very very quickly, simply by confiscating these Russian funds which are in U.S. and European depositories. Okay, so that's that's one of those key components: land, uh, uh, Ukraine's international status, i.e., can and can it and when can it join NATO, and the third part is a financial settlement. That's going to be part of that that complex financial settlement, and it's that which will bring the European Union and the United States into the negotiations. So it's going to be it's going to be a, you know it's going to be a very interesting peace conference, and it, there will have to be some kind of settlement because the, the this war is not going to be resolved militarily. Uh, as I said earlier, the West and Ukraine's hopes, its expectations that Ukraine could enjoy another great victory like it had in its defense of Kiev in its in its uh, offensive and around Kharkiv and its its capture of Kherson in the south that Ukraine could continue this process and that could actually functionally end the war on the battlefield that is probably not going to happen and that means there is going to be there're going to be negotiations there'll be a major peace conference and it's going to be very interesting to watch the terms and then very importantly the consequences of that who's the broker and what kind of authority or stature does that peace broker gain from a settlement 608-256-2001 Shally tells me that um uh, another caller uh, another Steve I guess uh, called and she sent me a note. He asked, um, he stated that I followed China's ascendance for decades and they have talked about how many, they, I'm not sure who, about how many contracts are awarded due to bribes. He, he was wondering if you can comment on that, uh, Al McCoy. Um, there is a lot of okay, the contracts due to bribes, okay? The, there's I think what the caller may be talking about are the um, allegations of corruption surrounding the massive Belt and Road Initiative that Beijing announced in 2013, this massive development scheme, which has now lent something like an excess of $1 trillion to 148 nations worldwide, mainly concentrated in uh, Asia, Africa, and to a certain extent, Latin America. Uh, and look, when you have any massive development scheme, any massive government program, there is inevitably corruption. That's just particularly when you're doing it the way China does it. If you're not lending to nations that have um, you know, high levels of governance, strong financial regulations, essentially emerging states with limited state capacity, avaricious if not rapacious elites 
You know, um, so you're either going to freeze them out of international capital markets, or if you're going to do as China's done to 148 nations, you're going to incorporate them, then inevitably there's going to be some corruption. And the question is really the scale. How much is the slice? You know, my working rule of thumb, if it's less than 10%, that's pretty efficient. If it gets more than 10%, depending on where it can go, it can, and it can get up to the point where, you know, the, 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 the aim is no longer the development project, but the kickbacks, then that becomes very problematic because the project doesn't get constructed in a, in a, in a viable way. The, the, the income and the repayments can't be made, and then the, the recipient of the loan is going to default, and that's going to rupture the reputation of the country who's defaulted and also the lender and discourage the lender from giving more loans. So far, there's a lot of you know, undocumented controversy or allegations about corruption, but it looks like the projects are getting built, that the work is getting done, and that these loans will actually produce projects that have the capacity to repay the loans. Al McCoy, we're getting right down to the end of the hour. Perhaps some uh, clo- closing observations or comments for our listeners today. Yeah, um, one of the most interesting things that's happened has been the, the, the coup last Saturday in Russia. And there's a lot of conversations about you know what it might mean. It turned out it was a you know, it was basically a 24-hour coup. It came, it went. The architect of the coup, the head of the Wagner mercenary army, is apparently now in exile in Belarus. His fo- some of his troops may follow him. So, the, you know, it looks like it's all over. But one of the things that's really curious about coups is even the most bungled coup can have a, a really subversive demonstration effect that in the <clears throat> officers' clubs and in the barracks, in the halls of the elites that are backing, you know, these potential coup plotters, everybody starts saying, you know, that one didn't work, but, you know, if we just did it a little better next time, maybe we could really bring this guy down, right? And that that corrosive demonstration effect can critically weaken a strong man like Putin and lead to subsequent challenges to his authority. So it's going to be really interesting to watch Russia and see what happens in the aftermath of this coup. Well, Al McCoy, we're going to have to let you go at, at this point. I want to thank you once again. Uh, it's always enlightening when I'm able to have you on. And uh, keep on keeping on, Professor. Uh, thank you. It's a, oh, it's a thank pleasure. you. Thank you very much. That was Professor Al McCoy, History Department, UW-Madison, talking about Ukraine, Russia, China, and the world situation. I want to take a moment before we run out of time completely to thank Chuck, who's been uh, my faithful engineer for quite some time now. This is his last day, and, and I want to welcome our new engineer being trained as we sit, as, as I speak, Jack Kuzma, uh, our engineer in training. I want to thank Shally for staff helping to produce this program and staffing the phones today. I want to thank you, our listeners. I've been your host for this week. My name is Alan Ruff, and I uh, hope to be speaking with you next week. Disregard the mainstream, media disported. We come and listen and support it.